Okay? Take your Bibles out tonight and find Genesis 47. Genesis 47. As we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Sojourning is what we're going to look at tonight. Sojourning. Living as pilgrims. Sojourning. Genesis 47. I tell you what, though, let's back up to the end of chapter 46, and we'll actually begin with verse 33 there, and then we'll jump down into chapter 47. Got it? Okay. Then he said, when Pharaoh calls for you and asks you about your occupation, you must tell him, we, your servants, have raised livestock all our lives as our ancestors have always done. When you tell him this, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen, for the Egyptians despise shepherds. Then Joseph went to see Pharaoh and told him, my father and my brothers have arrived from the land of Canaan. They've come with all their flocks and herds and possessions, and they are now in the region of Goshen. Joseph took five of his brothers with him and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? They replied, we, your servants, are shepherds just like our ancestors. We've come to live here in Egypt for a while, for there is no pasture for our flocks in Canaan. The famine is very severe there, so please, we request permission to live in the region of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the land of, or in the region of Goshen. And if any of them have special skills, put them in charge of my livestock too. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you? Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I have traveled this earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his court. So Joseph assigned the best land of Egypt, the region of Ramses, to his father and his brothers, and he settled them there, just as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided food for his father and his brothers in amounts appropriate to the number of their dependents, including the smallest children. Meanwhile, the famine became so severe that all the food was used up and people were starving throughout the lands of Egypt and Canaan. By selling grain to the people, Joseph eventually collected all the money in Egypt and Canaan, and he put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When the people of Egypt and Canaan ran out of money, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Our money is gone, they cried. But please give us food, or we will die before your very eyes. Joseph replied, since your money is gone, bring me your livestock. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food. 
in exchange for their horses, flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and donkeys, Joseph provided them with food for another year. But that year ended, and the next year they came again and said, We cannot hide the truth from you, my Lord. Our money is gone, and all our livestock and cattle are yours. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your very eyes? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We offer our land and ourselves as slaves for Pharaoh. Just give us grain so we may live and not die, and so the land does not become empty and desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold him their fields because the famine was so severe, and soon all the land belonged to Pharaoh. As for the people, he made them all slaves from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not buy was the land belonging to the priest. They received an allotment of food directly from Pharaoh, so they didn't need to sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Look, today I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. I will provide you with seed so you can plant the fields. Then when you harvest it, one-fifth of your crop will belong to Pharaoh. You may keep the remaining four-fifths as seed for your fields and as food for you, your households, and your little ones. You have saved our lives, they exclaimed. May it please you, my Lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph then issued a decree still in effect in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh should receive one-fifth of all the crops grown on his land. Only the land belonging to the priest was not given to Pharaoh. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property, and they were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt, so he lived 147 years in all. As the time of his death drew near, Jacob called for his son Joseph and said to him, Please do me this favor, put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will treat me with unfailing love by honoring this last request. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I die, please take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors. So Joseph promised, I will do as you ask. Swear that you will do it, Jacob insisted. So Joseph gave his oath. And Jacob bowed humbly at the head of his bed. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament reminds us that there is a time for everything. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the Bible says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear 
and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Maybe one of the better known passages in the Old Testament. Well, Israel is now entering a time of sojourning. And how long is this sojourning going to last? Do you remember? It's going to last a little over 400 years. And their situation is going to go from being pretty good to, to going bad. When a new pharaoh arises in the land, the Exodus 1 says, who knew not Joseph. So it's going to get pretty rough for Israel in Egypt, time it's said and done. And so Genesis 47 begins what will become a very long pause for Israel between the time of the patriarchs and the time of Moses and the Exodus. But as I've mentioned to you already, these chapters help us to understand how we get from the patriarchs in Canaan to Moses and the children of Israel suffering in slavery there in Egypt. So these chapters help us to understand that. Okay? If you're taking notes tonight, first of all, I want you to jot down settling into a new home. Settling into a new home from the first six verses. Now, let's remember how last, last week, how we ended uh, chapter 46 last week, what I began reading tonight, uh, how uh, Joseph tells his family uh, to request a pharaoh to live in Goshen and the fact that they are shepherds. And so time we begin, chapter 47, Israel is now settled in Goshen. Now Goshen was a very fertile area of Egypt. If you look at the maps at the back of your Bible, you'll notice that the area of Goshen is up high. We would say north, it would actually be to them in the south of the land of Egypt, up near the sea, where uh, Israel, I mean, excuse me, where Egypt borders the sea. That was the land of Goshen. And it was perhaps the most fertile area of all of Egypt. It was also a very sparsely populated area of, of Egypt. And it was an excellent place for grazing your livestock and your herds. Now, in telling this family to ask to settle in Goshen, there was great wisdom in that. As I mentioned last week, this would allow Israel to be in Egypt, but at the same time, separated from Egypt. Because the Egyptians didn't live up in that area. Or they lived, as I say, sparsely populated. And so they would be in Egypt, while at the same time, there would be a degree of separation from the Egyptians. And so they would be out of sight and out of mind, so to speak. Now, folks, there's some relevancy in that for us today, is there not? Because Egypt is oftentimes seen in the Bible as a type of what? 
a type of the world. Egypt is very often seen as a type of the world. Well, the church is in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be separate from the world. And that's exactly what Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn with me to your New Testament over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to begin reading with me in verse uh, 14, I believe it is. Chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says there, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. Don't be yoked together with those who are unbelievers. He goes on to ask, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And so the church is to be separate from the world. We're to be different from unbelievers. But folks, there's another reason that Goshen was good for Israel. As shepherds in Goshen, Israel would not have been viewed as a threat to the average Egyptian. And so again, they would be able to live with some degree of privacy. And the Egyptians would leave them alone. Now, this may even factor into why in chapter 47, uh, excuse, yeah, chapter 47, verses 1 to 4, Joseph only chooses five of his brothers to go with him to see Pharaoh it may be that Joseph is not wanting to parade a large group of 12 brothers before Pharaoh. Joseph himself is trying to keep things smaller and quieter as he takes his family before Pharaoh. Now in verses 5 and 6 we see that Pharaoh, even as a pagan, has a great deal of gratitude for Joseph and for the family that has produced Joseph. After all, had Joseph not interpreted his dream, Egypt would be in quite a mess by now. And who knows, maybe a large population of Egypt would already be dead. They would be starved to death had it not been for Joseph and the wisdom that God gave to him. And so what we see in these, in these two verses here, in verses 5 and 6, is gratitude. Folks, this is a huge lesson for us by way of example. You know, we've become an age today that it's every man for himself, is it not? And what a great example of gratitude. Pharaoh is showing us here. 
Now, obviously, more than just gratitude is going on, but it's certainly not less than gratitude. No doubt, Pharaoh, in his gratitude, recognizes that Joseph is someone who is connected in some way with deity, with deity above in Pharaoh's mind. He was the one who was able to interpret the dream. And so in Pharaoh's mind, he's thinking Joseph is in tune with whatever deity that Pharaoh would have believed is up there above. Now, Pharaoh may or may not have come to know Joseph's God, the true and the living God. Hopefully he has. We're not told. But nevertheless, again, he believes Joseph has some type of inside track with God. And what's the evidence of that? That things have turned out in the land exactly as Joseph said. The, the coming famine, everything happened exactly as Joseph had told Pharaoh years earlier it was going to happen. And so Pharaoh knows Whatever God is there, because the Egyptians had a plurality of gods, false gods and deities, but he's thinking whatever God's there, Joseph's got an inside track to him because things ended up happening just as Joseph said. And so again, there's a great deal of respect that Pharaoh has for Joseph and a great deal of gratitude. Now, folks, this is a testimony to us on still another level, too, isn't it? On the level of common grace. What's common grace? Anybody know what common grace is? Think of the Sermon on the Mount with me for a moment. What, what do theologians refer to when they speak of common grace? It's how Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that God makes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. And God makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. Folks, if not for common grace, unbelievers would be consumed. In fact, we would all be, cons uh, we would all be consumed. God is a gracious God. God is a benevolent God even to those who don't know him. God has looked after not just the Israelites, but God has looked after the Egyptians in his common grace. And he's provided for them. And so again, Pharaoh recognizes this. Now, there's another lesson still in verse 6. By asking for some, for some of Joseph's people to look after the royal herds, what's Pharaoh doing? Pharaoh is putting an official seal, so to speak, on what Joseph's family will be doing up in Goshen because they will not simply be tending to their own flocks and herds but they will be tending to the royal flocks and herds of Egypt. 
And what's that going to do? That's going to add another layer of legitimacy to the Israelites as they live inside of the boundaries of Egypt. Well, secondly tonight, I want you to see that Jacob, at least in part, fulfills God's promise to Abraham. Look again at verses 7 to 10. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you, Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I've traveled this earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his courts. Now by Jacob blessing Pharaoh, we see a couple of things here. First, this is a direct and immediate fulfillment of what God had told Abraham that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Now, obviously, that's a promise that is not ultimately fulfilled until the Messiah. But here, in part, Jacob is fulfilling this promise by blessing Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not among God's chosen people, but he is nonetheless being blessed by a descendant of Abraham. Folks, there's great reversal going on here, isn't there? Great reversal. Things are not always the way the world supposes them to be. In fact, things are seldom the way the world judges them to be. Now, what do I mean by that? Here is Jacob, a foreigner who normally would have bowed before royalty such as Pharaoh, but Jacob is the one giving the blessing. And remember what the Bible says of that when speaking of Melchizedek. Remember what the Bible tells us? The lesser is blessed by the greater. The world would have said that Pharaoh was the greater, but not so. Jacob is the greater. Jacob is a patriarch. He's God's man. And he's the one blessing royalty. Folks, it shows how with God, things are not always like the world judges things to be. Now, when Pharaoh asks about Jacob's age, he's not being rude. Remember, in ancient times, age old age specifically, was valued. And it was valued greatly. What's the book of Proverbs say about gray hair? What's gray hair a sign of? Wisdom. The ancient world greatly respected old age. 
Folks, it is we today who have this upside down. We're the ones who have it all backwards. In American culture and in Western culture in general, it's youthfulness that is placed high on the pedestal. If anything, that's backwards. It ought to be a concern for us in the church today too, right? When you look at the admonitions that the Apostle Paul gives in the pastoral epistles, what are the pastoral epistles? First and Second Timothy and Titus. Because it's an older minister teaching younger ministers. And what do you see about age in the pastoral epistles? What's the church admonished to do? Respect and honor? How so? By learning. What are the older women admonished to do? To be mentors who teach the younger women. And likewise, the older men are admonished to be mentors to the younger men and teach them. And the younger are to respect the older. The church needs youth for, for energy and to have a future, obviously, but we need older age for wisdom. The church today doesn't, doesn't value age the way it should. In fact, what do we oftentimes hear of, or what's the old saying, Russell can tell us this, when a church is looking for a pastor? Who are they looking for? What's the old saying in it? Obviously, it's a joke because it doesn't go together. They're looking for a pastor who's 35 years old and has 40 years of pastoral experience. <laughs> No, I'm serious. That's basically what people are looking for. I think we make a huge mistake today by not valuing maturity in the church the way we should. Occasionally, I've, I've heard of some famous preacher, there's, there's one I'm thinking of right now in my mind, who boasts, not in a bad way, he's a very respectable retired man now, but he boasts that he was already pastoring a church time he was 16 or 17 years old, literally. One of the most famous preachers in modern day Southern Baptist life. And he was pastoring at 16 or 17 years of age. Now folks, that's not wise. I'm telling you, that's, I don't think that's wise on the part of a congregation because there is wisdom that comes with age. And somebody in their teens doesn't have the wisdom needed to pastor a church. I even think we're making a huge mistake today with education. Now, admittedly, I'm chasing a bit of a rabbit here, but it ties in with my overall point. 
Our own denomination is making decisions today in our seminaries that I I question. I was reading in Baptist Press just today of one of our major seminaries teaming up with a college to where you can shorten your seminary time. Now, obviously, they, you know, you still have to pass some kind of proficiency exams, but you can go from your bachelor's degree into your master's degree at seminary, and you can kind of compact the whole thing and shorten the whole thing down. I think it's a mistake. And the reason it's a mistake, from my point, I've sat on plenty of ordination councils when we're reviewing a young man and he's not ready. It's very apparent by the questions asked and his answers. He's not ready. He's not prepared. And it's a shame. Folks, I just think that we're in too big of a hurry today. Too big of a hurry. I can promise you that if you're having eye surgery this week or you're having major heart surgery, who are you going to look for? You're going to look for a little more seasoned doctor, right? Who's got got a little little more experience under his belt. Should it be anything less with the things of God? Folks, I'm just simply saying all this to point out, I think we today need to value age a little more than we do. Even older adults need to value their age more than they do. So many older adults think of retiring and letting somebody else take over. But in our, in our churches, we need older adults to stay involved and stay in the trenches. Continue to serve. Because you have wisdom, you have experience that younger folks don't have. And so you've got a lot to give. I don't know how it's happened in the Western world the way it has, but it's interesting that in the Eastern world, even today, they still value age more. Older people are honored and they're turned to for advice and they're not just put out to pasture. Well, notice one thing that uh, Jacob does say about his age. He comments how old he is, but then what does he go on to say? Oh, I'm young compared to my ancestors. And, And you think about Abraham and Isaac, and he is a good bit younger than them. Now, we know that after the flood, gradually lifespans did, in fact, start shrinking. If you don't believe it, just go back tonight and read Genesis chapter 5. Because in Genesis chapter 5, the genealogies given there, you're going to see people living, uh, you know, five, six hundred years old, all the way up to Methuselah. How old was he? 
969 years old. Then after Genesis 9, gradually lifespans started shortening just like God said they would. Now, it doesn't happen all at once and across the board 100%, but it did start happening. I think God, in his grace, determined that sinful man was, was going to have to face his own mortality sooner. He wasn't going to be allowed to live in such sin and evil for so long. Now, you'll also read from some writers uh, about changes in the atmosphere uh, and creation after the flood. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to comment on all that. But it does make one wonder what kind of changes might have even happened in the environment after the flood. Uh, really, after the fall in Genesis 3, but even more after the flood what changes began to happen in the environment that helped explain some of the shortened lifespans. You can also read uh, about as the generations have gone on longer and longer, there's more and more genetic abnormalities that have been introduced into the gene pool. Now true, Medical advances have tried to have offset that. But still, as generations have gone on, the gene pool is, is more and more corrupt. All of this factors in to shorter lifespans. Again, it's not an area I'm qualified to, to speak in, but it, it is interesting to consider. Now, in verse 12, we see that Joseph is a type of Christ. What is he doing here? He's providing food for his brethren. Joseph is generally regarded as a type of Christ. He was despised by his brothers. They were going to kill him, but of course they ended up selling him into slavery uh, for a certain amount of silver, but he was despised by him, and now He's the one providing for them. So he's a type of Christ. Now, a third thing I want you to see tonight is hardships increase in the land. Beginning in verse 13, hardships increase in the land. In the second half of chapter 47, we see that as the famine continued, more and more even of the Egyptians were afflicted. Now, that says something about the severity of the famine, doesn't it? that even the Egyptians are beginning to be affected now. Initially, the Egyptians are simply buying grain from Joseph, but when their money runs out, what do they do? They have to start selling their, their livestock to, to Pharaoh. And then it so happens when all their livestock is gone, then what are they selling? They're selling their land. And finally, what are they selling? They're selling themselves into servitude. <coughs> Volunteer slavery so they can get food and survive. Now some have suggested that Joseph took advantage of their poverty. But actually not true. Because you'll, you'll notice that 
Joseph ends up telling them, the seed I'm going to give you, you've got to share how much of it with Pharaoh? One-fifth, okay? In the nations in that part of the world at that time, commonly the people paid to their kings 60%, as much as 60% of everything they made. So even at 20%, the Egyptians are still getting off a lot easier. And it's been suggested that the reason the Egyptians, even when things get so bad, uh, the reason that they're only having to pay 20% is because of why. During these years of famine, who's been coming to Egypt? The nations and the peoples of the world. They've been buying grain for their countries. And so the coffers in Egypt have been overflowing. And that probably explains why even when Joseph starts taxing them, he's still taxing them at a very low rate compared to what other countries were paying to their king. Well, a fourth thing I want you to notice. Israel prospers. Look at verse 27. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property and they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt so he lived 147 years in all. There's an interesting irony that begins to happen in verse 27. An interesting contrast. What do you notice? What are the Egyptians having to do? They're having to sell their property. What are the Israelites doing? They're, uh, remember, they're in Egypt. They're in Goshen. Here the Egyptians are having to surrender their property. The Israelites are acquiring more property. And we're told that they were very fruitful. We see something here that's going to be pointed out later on in the book of Exodus. Exodus will point out the distinction that God made between his people and the Egyptians. The book of Exodus. And the rest of the Pentateuch points this out. That God made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians and the other nations? Was it because the Israelites were bigger or better or more powerful? No. It was simply because God had set his favor on them and had chosen them. In verses 29 to 31, we see a custom occurring here that was not inappropriate, 
Jacob calls for Joseph to, to place his hand under his thigh. Now, basically, what's going on here when you study this is that Jacob is instructing Joseph to place his hand under his privates. Now, this was a custom of the peoples of the time. It was symbolic. It was a sign of future generations to come that would, that would take place from Jacob's seed. Jacob is making Joseph vow that he will carry Jacob's body back to Canaan and bury him with his ancestors. What's the recognition on Jacob's part that even though he lives another he lives 17 years as a sojourner in the land of Egypt, Egypt is not going to be his home. His home as promised by God to Abraham was Canaan. Folks, this is a statement of faith on Jacob's part. He knows that his descendants are not going to live together, uh, live forever. Uh, in the land of Egypt. Egypt's not going to be their home. They're only sojourners in Egypt. God is going to prosper them. Jacob is going to have a lot of seed. He's going to have a lot of descendants. And they're going to grow in the land. And God's going to deliver them. And God's going to lead them in the exodus back to Canaan. And so Jacob is here instructing Joseph to place his hand where he does, recognizing that God's going to give Jacob many descendants and God's going to take them back to their own land. And when they do, they need to carry his body with them. And so it is a statement of faith on his part. A statement of faith. He knows that the chapter that God is writing is not done yet. God promised his descendants their own land and they're going to have their own land. And they're going to have, he's going to have many descendants. Folks, in the Old Testament, the land was very much tied to to God's promise and, and God's blessing. The land itself, the physical land, and the inheritance of the land was, was very important to the Jew. Now, likewise, we today are to be looking for a land, right? We're to be looking for a city. What does the book of Hebrews say about that? We're to be looking for a city whose builder and maker is who? Is God. And so we, likewise, live in this world as sojourners. We aren't to settle down too much in this world as though this world is our home, because it's not. We're not to be laying up our treasures in this world. God has something better for us. God has a future for his people. For us today... It's heaven. 
And heaven is a real place. It's a physical place. It's not floating around on clouds as disembodied spirits playing harps. Heaven is a real place, a future home for the children of God. And just like Jacob's descendants weren't to get too comfortable down in Egypt, we're not to get too comfortable in the world. And we're to put our treasure in heaven. Now there's some lessons I want to leave, leave you with tonight. Namely, just three, and they're each one pretty short. Lesson number one, God provides for his own. God provides for his own. Just as he did them in, in Goshen. God provides for his own. Secondly, God views things differently than how man does. God views things differently than how man does. And lastly, God's people are to be different from the unbelievers in the world. God's people are to be different from the unbelievers in the world. Okay, we're quickly coming to an end of this book. Anything stand out to you tonight that I didn't cover? Any comments anybody want to make? Richard? Yeah, a, I heard the other day on a Jewish uh, TV station that the population of the world less than 1%, way less than 1% is Jewish. And yet they say that uh, 28 to 30% of the scientists uh, famous scientists are Jewish. So even today, you know, uh, God's blessing is on Jewish. I don't know how that came about, but you know, it's a, just an amazing statistic. You know. Sure. Actually, uh, there's a large amount of inventions. I think they have the highest degree of like PhDs and scientists and inventions and so forth. Judging by their size, there's a very large percentage who are Jewish. What was the thing that, that turned the uh, Egyptians against the Jewish people in Goshen? Was it because they were getting so populated and successful? Sure, they became so numerous mm -hmm. when this new pharaoh comes to power this, you know, long after Jacob and all of his sons are gone, they become so numerous, the new Pharaoh is concerned that, hey, if we don't do something now, they're going to overrun the land and uh, we're going to be in a fix. So, anyway. And, and that, that concern comes out of... Uh, first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, a professor, uh, Dr. David Black, wrote a book called The Myth of Adolescence. And he addressed the age of accountability, the age 
to when Jesus was in the temple teaching. Right. But it also he pointed out that the age on maturity is age thirty. Jesus did not start his own ministry until age, age thirty. 30. Yeah, the, uh, the Jewish boys would have their bar mitzvah uh, at age uh, 12 or 13. The girls would have their bat mitzvah at age 11 or 12. And at that point on, of course, bar mitzvah literally means at that point you become a son of the commandment. And what they mean by that is you are, you are now accountable for the law and the keeping of the law. And so that's the age that they felt like a child was moving from a child to a responsible enough age that they were accountable for their actions. Of course, the Bible, New Testament, you know, we're not told anywhere about an age of accountability. Uh, some people think maybe Paul's statement in Romans 7 is as close as you'll find that he says, there was a time in my life that I was alive apart from the law. But then the law came and I died. And what Paul might be saying is there, there came that time that I moved out of the innocence of childhood. Of course, children aren't innocent. Anybody who has a two-year-old knows that, you know. But Paul's saying I moved out of that childhood innocence to I understood the law and the commandment and that I broke the law and the commandment and I died. Spiritual death. Um, is that what Romans 7 is teaching? It, that's debated. But uh, anyway, age of accountability is, is not necessarily taught in the New Testament. But we know certainly the Bible points out that even if it's not taught, there is an age at which we're accountable for what we do. I've seen children, five, six that was very sound and being able to make a commitment to Christ. Right. And I've seen them older, much older, and still not yeah. understand. Sure. 